Hey, Pitchfork listeners, Goldie here. You know, we read a lot of books in uh, preparation for the podcast, and sometimes these books just stand out in a way that they deserve their own standalone episode. So this week, uh, I had a conversation with Chris Arnotti, who is the author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, which chronicles his exploration of poverty in America face-to-face, uh, meeting up with people in cities and towns across the country. It's a beautiful book that paints an intimate picture of poverty in America through pictures and words, and I urge you all to pick up a copy. Hi, Chris. This is David Goldstein. Thanks for joining us. I, I, um, I was going to say I really enjoyed your book. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's not enjoyable in many ways because it's, uh, it's such a bleak picture sometimes. Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's, uh, the like buttons doesn't really capture it necessarily. Yeah. So if we could just start by having you uh, say your name, describe who you are, and of course, uh, plug your book. I'm Chris Arnotti. I'm a writer and photographer. I spent the last, I guess, wow, seven years driving around the United States talking to what I call back row Americans, people who uh, generally don't get interviewed a lot all across the states. Um, I put 200,000 miles on my car doing that and um, focusing on the reviews on many things, addiction, poverty, community. And uh, what I found over those five years and seven years of, of interviewing people was what I call, is basically the title of my book, Dignity. I found that despite going to towns that people told me not to go to, um, that are stigmatized as um, places that are not worth living in, um, I, I found uh, a lot of frustration, but I also found a lot of people striving to maintain a title my book dignity and uh, i i think it's it's clear from the book why you titled it dignity the subtitle if you could elaborate on uh, you say seeking respect in back row america why the choice of words back row well one of the things that i i found during my um my time out doing this project was uh i i felt like the, the largest division i was seeing in the country one that I don't think was being spoken a lot about is uh, what I call it is an educational divide, that the places I was going to were very diverse racially. Some were entirely African-American, some were entirely Mexican-American, some were entirely white, um, was diverse geographically. I mean, I went everywhere. Um, I, went, I went from from Utah to California to Arizona to Maine to Pennsylvania. And despite all the very big differences, um, what united them, besides a a uniform frustration and a uniform desire for dignity, was the bulk of the residents in these communities were people who hadn't excelled at school. They will have a high school degree probably, but not much more than that. And if they went to university, it was usually a smaller state school or a community college or a trade school. These communities were defined largely by a lack of high educational credentials and which was in contrast to where I had come from and what I who I was I have a PhD in physics I was a Wall Street trader for 20 years um, and I lived in a very elite um, wealthy Brooklyn neighborhood and I had come from a world in which was that largely dominates the media largely dominates um, our institutions um, and our politics is what I call the front row people who have a lot of elite educational credentials who 
have postgraduate degrees. And um, that contrast, I call that the front row, kind of the old school um, kind of um, analogy of the kids who sat in the front <laughs> seeking the teacher's attention versus the kids who sat in the back <laughs> um, worried about the teacher's attention. And I kind of ran with that analogy as kind of being what I thought was still very um, prevalent in our society and, and, and very um, very important. It's almost like that difference, you know, difference between people who have a lot of education and people who don't have a lot of education is, in my mind, far more important or very much a driver of today's politics and today's um, issues um, that, that dominate the news. But clearly from... You know what you saw on your your journey. It it wasn't always that way. Education wasn't uh, such a dividing line. A, a lot of these uh, cities and towns you visited uh, used to have a thriving middle class, a, a working class, and and today it's very different. Right. I think what's happened is the reward from having education and the punishment that comes from not having education is that's changed. That's gotten more dramatic. So one of the things I found in every community I went to was one of the the lines I heard many, many times said over and over by so many different people was something of the variation of, I I could walk out of high school into a lifetime job, a lifetime job that had stability and paid me well, and I could build, you know, a life around. I heard variations of that phrase everywhere, and it was kind of a uniform sense of, this is lost, you know, this kind of stability that almost always from elder, from retirees who would say, you know, the stability I had and I, that enabled me to raise a family and enabled our community to build, to build itself up and, and raise children is gone. And I, I don't see my children or my grandchildren having that. So I think at the center was a, was a very deep economic driver that kind of that has, has magnified the difference between people who have educations and people who don't have educations. Right, because it, you know, in the in the aggregate, we've never been better educated. I mean, more people across the country have high school and college degrees than ever before. It's uh, it's the economic circumstances that seem to have clearly changed over the past fifty years. Right. Again, you know, I think. The, the person I'll always remember, I think, I forget her name, I believe her name was Susan, was in Battle Creek, Michigan. Um, and that's, for, I don't know if all your listeners know yeah. the significance of Battle Creek, but that's where Kellogg cereal is, mm-hmm. is generally, generally made in post cereal. And it, the town literally, everybody should go there because the town literally does smell like smell like um, cereal. Right. Um, but a, a lot of the people, a lot of the, a lot of the factories have left. There's there's far less jobs in the factories there. But I think she's the one who told me, you know, uh, I said, you know, she was, I'm glad I'm not young anymore. And, you know, I don't I don't mind being old. And I said, well, come on, everybody wants to be young again. You know, have a long life. She goes, well, no, you know, um, I, I don't want I don't want the life my my grandchildren are going to have to face. The one where, you know, they're they're struggling, check to check, they can't. They can't count on a check enough to, to, to buy a home and, to, and then have children. And she says, you know, we could do that. I, you know, she, she literally walked out of high school onto the factory floor, and so did her husband. Um, and, you know, they, had, they, they, they described themselves as having had pretty good lives, right. even though they, you know, they've never gone to college. I'm wondering, you know, when you started out on this, it, it came after uh, 20 years as a bond trader on Wall Street. 
how the, the, the reality of poverty, the, the people in their neighborhoods, how it was different from what you had expected when you started out? I think, you know, the, the two biggest things I would say, the two, the, there are three, things, three takeaways that I kind, of, I kind of tell my old bond trader self and my, old, and my, and my, and my, my friends in that world. One is um, it's not as dangerous as you expect. <laughs> you know, there's a stigma attached to these neighborhoods that they're, they're violent. Um, and, you know, the places I went, especially the, the urban settings, have, you know, crime rates that are 10 to 20 times higher than the, quote, safe neighborhoods. But people forget that even though they're 10 to 20 times higher, the overwhelming number of residents still abide by the law. In, in, a, in a safe neighborhood, 2% of the people are breaking the crimes, and in a poor neighborhood, a bad neighborhood is 8%, but still 92% of the people are still doing their best and playing by the rules. And so personal safety was never an issue. You know, I happen to be a man, so I think it's different for females. But, you know, I, I went into places where I was told not to go because it was, quote, dangerous, and I never once faced a problem. Number two is there are more of them than I, I, I realize. They're everywhere. Um, I mean, they're literally, you know, it doesn't take much. To, uh, I unfortunately now have the skill of being able to find, quote, the bad neighborhood in any town I go to pretty quickly. Even in, quote, our best, best cities, you have pockets of, uh, of poverty that are, are just really, in my mind, embarrassing to our country, that these exist so close to such wealth. And the third is, you know, one of the things I hadn't intended, I hadn't realized is I, I kind of went in thinking I knew what was best for people without really asking them. Like I had all the, I had all the answers, you know, if only, if only we did X, this, this wouldn't be a problem. And I kind of, by the end of the whole process, I realized that that was, wasn't only arrogant of me, but it really wasn't, wasn't right. I mean, you know, it's like, it's not really my job to think I know what's best for people without asking them. And so I think there's this general attitude amongst what I call the front row that we, we, we know what's best for the back row. You know, like, why are they voting against their, their self-interest is the phrase that people often use right. without realizing maybe you don't know what their self-interest is. You know, maybe, maybe your concept of what their self-interest is is wrong. Um, so it was this recognition that I really didn't understand the back row. Um, I didn't understand their worldview. I didn't understand the language they used. Um, I didn't understand their whole worldview, even though I, going in, I thought I did because, you know, I, I come from a working class town. So being a bond trader was, was not really expected of me. But even though I, I, I assumed just because I had come from a working class town and I grew up around in a pretty poor area that I still understood the mentality, but but, uh, but I realized after like 30 years of being removed from it, I, I didn't. I didn't understand the mentality. It's actually one of the things that's unsatisfying about your book is that you you do a really good job of uh, teaching the reader what we don't know. I didn't come away with any... I didn't feel like I was better situated to, to come up with solutions. Right, and that was a not accidental choice on my part because... Well, because I don't know if I know the solutions. Part of the whole process was me under, when I, and I hope to convey to the reader the same attitude that it's not clear I understand what is best. 
right. and that maybe it's not my place to even suggest that. <laughs> you know, maybe it's my place to be one vote out of you know fifty million instead of trying to trying to sway other people and listen. And then instead of telling them what they need and what I think is best for them, is let them tell me what they think is best for them. But that doesn't mean I'm not willing to say that it wasn't things I've learned that I try to I try to um, convey to other people um, and let people other people decide you know based on what I learned and what I saw and what these people told me what they think is the what best solution I don't really want to jam solutions down people's throats you know on on this podcast we talk a lot about economics from the theoretical perspective and you know one of the one of the things we people often talk about is economic mobility. What struck me from your book was the the lack of literal mobility in these communities that it's not it's not fair to say I mean some people are stuck where they are because they can't afford to move, but they're also there because that's their home and that's you know they have family, that's where they want to be despite the utter lack of opportunity. I think you know. I think what the economic profession. You know, I don't want to to economic explain to experts, but um, in my opinion, one of the things the economic profession gets wrong is the they kind of they often it's easily dismiss things that can't be measured, so you can't really measure the value of place. You can't measure the value of you know continuity of being in the same place for sixty years, seventy years, and what that brings to people. You know, I, I call it. I call it in the book. I call it what I call non non credential forms of meaning, things that we gift, we are gifted at birth, um, that have value to people. One of those is place. The other is family. Um, the other is faith. You know, things that aren't tangible necessarily, and can easily be dismissed as not having value, but in many cases have immense value to people. You know, that was one of the hardest things to recognize. From or at least one of the biggest things that changed in my mind is is, you know, I was one of those people who just moved. You know, I grew up in a small working class town and I didn't want to be there and I moved on and I've moved all my life. And so if you talked to me maybe 15, 16 years ago or t- 10 years ago, I'd have been someone who said, if I saw a town that was having problems, just tell people to move. I did it. They can do it. Right. But, you know, that's just not, besides being arrogant, but that that's just not how people think. And that's not how people aren't widgets that just can be moved at, at a moment's notice. You know, one of the, one of the stories I tell in the book is of a young woman, Mexican American in, in LA who couldn't move. She couldn't, she, she stayed to go to a local community college because she couldn't go away to a better school, a better school, a different school, a more elite school. And the reason was because she was her mom's translator. Her mom was, you know, first generation immigrant who doesn't speak English and you know, like like most immigrant families, a second generation, act, you know, the oldest daughter or oldest son act as the kind of go between, and that was her role. And uh, you know, and so she was going to stay in the neighborhood to be there for her family. And you know, I think that's a very useful role for her. And I, I, I and she gets she gets a lot of value out of that. Her mother gets a lot of value out of that, and it's very important to her. And I, I think that sort of story I heard all over the country. Again, that's that non-credential form of meaning is something that is very valuable to the to people who don't have a lot of material possessions. Right. And to deny it by suggesting that everybody should be able to move in many ways is very elitist. It's very much taking away value from the working class. 
it, you know, and it, it's a narrative that actually runs counter to the you know decades of conservative arguments that you know a lot of the poverty is the result of the breakdown of the family and of a decline in faith. When in fact the people you encountered, it's it's family and faith that keeps them in the community. There's a double-edged sword there that it is being eroded in many cases. Um, I think the within the what I call the back row, the the number of people who are religious, the number of people who um, maintain what you know kind of strong family structures is is eroding. But for the people who have it, it's extraordinarily important, and you know most people want it. You know, most people don't want, I mean, you know, I think where the conservatives get very, very wrong is this idea that somehow people don't want to have a strong family, that somehow they're just, you know, against it. No, people want it. They just don't have the economic means to, to obtain it. You know, it goes back to the thing that, you know, people say, well, you know, you need a family. Well, yeah, but you also need a house to, to, to build a family around and you need a job to be able to buy the house. So you need to be able to put your economic house in order before having a family, and they can't do that, so they have the family anyways. So there's this immense desire for a family, but it doesn't play out in the way that conservatives wish it played out. And I would argue that's because of the economic problems. You came at this as a photographer. I'm wondering when you go into these, in some of these these towns and cities you describe, and you can see from, from some of your photos, these were beautiful places at one time. I, I particularly struck you were walking through, I think it was uh, Cairo, Illinois, and how it seemed, parts of it seemed to be totally abandoned. How tempting was it to just go back to the archives and look for the photos of, of what it used to be? Right. I mean, I mean, Cairo is actually a fascinating place, and I've, I've told one of my friends who's a professor of African-American studies that it, there needs to be a few theses written, graduate theses in, in, uh, written about Cairo, because it really is a story of um, so many themes in American recent American history. It once was a thriving town. Um, it's at it's at the juncture, I think, of the I'm, I'm going to get this embarrassingly wrong. I think it's the Ohio-Mississippi River come together there. And so it's on a peninsula, um, and it's just physically gorgeous. I mean, you've got the Mississippi on one side and the Ohio on the other, and it's just um, – but traditionally, I think, it's been half black, half white, and it had um, you know, a, a long history of racism that resulted in um, protests in the six, late 60s that turned into um, – that were relabeled by the white residents as riots – and uh, then whites left, and so now it's primarily just an African American town, with, I think I don't know, I'm going to guess the population wrong, like 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, um, that mostly live in two housing projects, um, isolated from everything. There's there's no hotel there. There is no McDonald's. <laughs> there's like one gas station. But it's just it's just a really depressing place. But at the same time, the people there, you know, are resilient and have um, are wonderful people. Um, and many of them just don't want to leave because it's their home. <laughs> this is a place they've known all their you know their grandparents were right. born here. And so it's really tough to 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 leave a place that you, where everybody you know everybody and everybody knows you and you're valued. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I went, I actually went back and looked at the archives photos of, you know, back when Cairo was a party town where people would come and, and go to the casinos or, or, or go out for the nightclubs back in the fifties and forties. 
um, and you know, to see what it is now compared to then. Do you imagine that there's any way to recover some of these cities and towns? I've been trying to think about ways to answer that question in many minute, and I think the natural order of business. I mean, it's almost like, and I kind of think you're seeing it in the data now that maybe, maybe our kind of con- our, our our desire to congregate in a few neighborhoods and a few towns has reached its its peak, where where people, a lot of younger people are now realizing, younger professionals are now realizing, hey, I'm, I'm like, why why am I struggling to pay three thousand dollars to share an apartment in in Brooklyn when I could you know I could live in Prestonburg, Kentucky, or I could live in, um, you know, Toledo, Ohio, or Cleveland, or, or Milwaukee, and have a lot of a lot of things I look for in New York City or, or, or L.A., but I can also get in these smaller, mid-sized towns. So I think places like some of the places I documented, like Milwaukee and Cleveland and El Paso, that kind of had suffered in, in, in the past, I think are going to be the recipient of people, you know, recognizing that they're not as dangerous and they're not as quote, you know, culturally decimated as people think they are. And there's a lot going on, but in a place like Cairo though, and a place like some of the other smaller places that are far more rural, I don't know what's going to happen to them. And I don't know if there's a quote, an answer beyond just slowly, slowly dying. Uh, again, <laughs> I don't want to sound like I came away. It's a beautiful book. It's just it's it's depressing sometimes. Yeah, you know, and I and I it's hard to write a depressing book because I know, you know, I, I jokingly say to my my wife, I said, you know, uh, I really wish I could end the book with like you know a dog, a, you know, like a magical dog coming in and saving everybody and everyone being happy. <laughs> but that's just not the way it is, you know. And I I, I don't I understand people don't want to necessarily read something that's pessimistic but but one of you know one of the things i part of the way i got a i got a name for myself to get the book was you know uh, i predicted trump was going to be when i you know i i didn't want i didn't want him to be elected but i said i i, I you know this is what i think is going to happen and i and i maybe people can take the book as a warning sign that you know you know i hope they can read it and say hey yeah this looks bleak but let's let's think about ways to change you know change it so we we so it doesn't play out in the in the, in the ugly way uh, how much does the trade issue uh play i mean clearly a lot of these these communities were devastated by the closing of factories where the work was offshored yeah that's kind of um it's huge and i think I, I i could wear two hats i have my old wall street hat which understands mathematically and um, and so, and economically, the value of free trade. Right. Um, but uh, as I've said, I could also wear my other hat, where I've, I've you know, uh, these towns, these communities have been destroyed. And I also understand, you know, I'm I'm not so, I'm not so ideological, and I can I understand you can't go back in time. Um, history is path dependent, and we're on this particular path. Um, but I think what I would hope to take out of it is, I, I, as I say, you know, free trade is such a misnomer. I mean, we, what we have is highly complex negotiations between two different regulatory regimes, you know, right. and maybe in the future when we negotiate those, um, those treaties, we can put a little bit more, think a little bit more about who's in the loss column and what it means to be in the loss column and how much of a loss it is. It's not just, you know, a factory that's gone. It's, a factory that's gone, and then families fall apart, and then drugs come in, <laughs> right. you know, and and people die. The the losses I think that 
people have kind of tallied in the past or thought about in the past were kind of underestimated and didn't really, I don't think they really understood what they meant when they said there was going to be losses. Also tallied in the aggregate as opposed That's to correct. L- looking at the impact on individual lives. Right. And so, you know, I used to simply say my cartoonish version was in, back in the Wall Street days, we would look at, you know, our decision-making process was to run a spreadsheet, find the, the column heading with losses in one cell and the column heading with gains in one another cell and add them up and see if it was a positive, we would do it. <laughs> and then not really dig into the what, what the losses meant and what the, what the positives meant. You know, I'll put on my old leftist hat and say also that, you know, the other assumption was somehow that we'd go into this, you know, yeah, there'd be losers and be winners, but the winners would, um, you know, would compensate the losers. <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> no, haven't done that in a while. It's, it's funny because, you know, comparative advantage, the math works out just so perfectly on paper. You can't argue with it. <laughs> but the impact on, on the economy, real lives, it, it doesn't turn, you know, it's, we don't live our lives on paper. That's right. And I mean, that's kind of what I hope policymakers take away from my book is that people aren't, aren't, aren't widgets and they're not blips on a computer screen. They're actual people who have real lives. And the secondary and tertiary effects of policy can sometimes be larger than the primary effects. You can say, well, the secondary effect is we're going to lose this factory. And then tertiary effect is that we'll lose um, some some jobs and some communities might, might have to, some people might have to move. But in classic nonlinear fashion, those those third order effects can have can have can be larger than the primary effects. And I think with the politics we're seeing now, I think people, you know, it's my view that in many cases we're, that's happening right now. The secondary effects and, and tertiary effects have now become primary. You mentioned in the book that you feel that your industry, your old industry, Wall Street, was uh, both responsible and largely insulated from. Uh, the Great Recession. I'm wondering, in talking with your old uh, Wall Street buddies, whether they share that sentiment. Yeah, um, some do, a few do, and generally those are the ones I talk to. <laughs> um, part of what frustrated me, I mean, I didn't leave until I didn't leave the industry until like five years after the financial crisis, and part of what ended up making me leave was um, was a realization, like I was kind of the head and sand attitude a lot of us had towards um, the crisis. I, I, I had naively, in retrospect, thought that our in, the industry would change dramatically after the financial crisis. Um, and a few, the few of us who had long argued that our industry needed to change would would would, would feel would see some change. But um, I was stunned to realize most people doubled down and actually were in denial that we had any real role in the process. And so that was very disheartening, and ultimately, and that's partly why I left the industry. I was just, you know, I, I was really stunned at how it be, how it reacted to the financial crisis. The, the one thing I do like about banking, in aggregate, bankers are very open-minded, believe it or not. I, I tell, say that to people, and a lot of people don't, don't believe that, but they're intellectually curious and open-minded, and I think if enough evidence comes their way, um, they can be they can be um their minds can be changed and i think um you know with with all that's happened in the last uh, 5 years with the opioid deaths with the um politics going on globally i think a lot of them are now rethinking their behavior and rethinking um re- rethinking their politics one final question just to ask you about all this is why do you do this 
you know, I think ultimately it's selfish. I enjoy it. There, I started the project when I was still working on Wall Street, and there was this kind of absurd, in retrospect, year of my life when I was trading during the day, and on, on the weekends and at night, I was kind of going into uh, very poor neighborhoods and spending my time with homeless addicts underneath bridges. And uh, I, I couldn't carry on both at the same time, so I, I ended up leaving Wall Street, um, and mostly because I preferred... <laughs> I mean, I prefer being <laughs> around the homeless addicts. You know, it was just, it was more, I found in aggregate, I I enjoyed the company more, to be honest, um, and blunt. That's not to say I, I don't have a lot of Wall Street friends still, but um, it was more intellectually appealing. And it was also, there's, I, I appreciate the honesty more. Thank you for the work and thank you for the book. Um, and thank you for having me on. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye. Chris Arnotti paints a really uncomfortable portrait of what it's like to live in these impoverished communities. It's important because it's so easy to lose perspective, whether you were like him, a Wall Street bond trader with that 40,000-foot view of the wreckage below, or you're like us, you know, just a bunch of talkers on a podcast approaching all these issues from a theoretical perspective. So while I know this wasn't the typical sort of interview you get on Pitchfork Economics, I hope it helped you gain a little perspective, too, about the real-world impact of the decisions we're making and why it's so important to actually achieve real structural change. On an upcoming episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be talking about free trade. But of course, as is our want, much of that conversation will be theoretical. So we want to hear from you. How has trade policy affected your life? Have you had a job offshored overseas? Has it been good for your business? Tell us your story. Give us a call at 731-388-9334, and maybe we'll use it on the air. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>